You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, every year about this time, it's the Easter season, which means every year about this time, I get asked, what in the world are you wearing? What is that silken-like object around your neck? And I say, it's a suit. And they go, we've never seen you in a suit. And I said, ah, it's because you weren't here last Easter. (laughs) And my response is always the same. I always wear a suit to a funeral. Lest we forget, Easter, Resurrection Sunday, is a funeral for death. Must never, never forget that. When we gather together to proclaim that Jesus is alive, what that means is death has died. Oh, it still has effect. It still has some sway. But Easter is funeral for death. When Jesus drew a breath, he put death to death. So we are here to commemorate and to live in light of that hope and that certainty. But as we approach that, I want to draw our hearts, affections, and our minds attention, and I wonder if you've ever buried someone very close to you. Seeing the faces in this room, I know that you have. And I've been a part of some of those with you. To hear that horrible expression that we pastors say at the end of a graveside service, and I've had the privilege and the responsibility to say it at some gravesides of my own family members. To say with finality, and this is all, there is nothing else we can do for our loved one. You are dismissed. It's the worst. I hate that part. But it must be said because it is true, because there must be closure. But that cold clasp of death as it moves from the theoretical into the intensely intensely personal and practical. And if you haven't experienced it, you will. And the whole world, I can tell you from personal experience, seems to grow dull. It seems to grow dim. It just flattens. And the whole world just sort of seems to, to lose its taste. And I think that's the sense that the Apostle John writes his gospel as he will say over and over again, and it was night, and it grew darker, and it was night, and it grew darker, and it was night, and it grew darker, duller, and dimmer. Sort of the pinnacle and the climax of that darkness is in John chapter 13, when in the upper room discourse, Jesus has washed his disciples' feet, but Judas who is going to betray Jesus. John is very emphatic, very careful to describe the the incident. Judas leaves the room, he departs, and John just simply says, and it was night. So that we know that things are dark and dull and dim. It was dark, it was night, it grew darker and darker, but he is light. And there is no darkness in the cosmos, no matter how heavy, no matter how thick, that can ever extinguish a singular flicker of light. It is an impossibility. And so what John wants us to understand in his gospel is that Jesus is light. 
Our study throughout this Gospel of John brings us finally to Resurrection Sunday where we get to proclaim that Jesus, the light of the world, though it looks like He has died and it's over and that He has lost, oh no, we get to proclaim that He is not dead, but that Jesus is alive. He's alive. That's our big idea for the morning, and that's going to be our big idea for all eternity. He's alive. Let me give you the new Eric translation of that. It goes like this. He's alive, y'all. I know that it's been 2,000 years, but he's alive. And for all eternity, do you understand? For all eternity, we will simply proclaim that he's done it, that he is alive. Oh, he died. Make no mistake. But he is alive. Now, for those of you who are with us this morning for the first time, I want you to know that we, as a church and as a campus, have been walking through the Gospel of John since September of last year. We've been studying all that John has written, specifically seven different signs or wonders, what John will call semeon. They signify his message that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. All of the sayings that accompany those signs and wonders so that the reader of John's gospel will believe. They will trust. Last Sunday was Palm Sunday. What we did here is we walked through John chapter 18 and we saw the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he is subject to six trials, six civil trials, six religious trials, and he is declared innocent all six times and executed, sentenced to death. Two nights ago on Good Friday, we walked through John chapter 19 and we saw the horror of the crucifixion as the innocent dies shamefully as a curse in place of the guilty. Which brings us at long last to Resurrection Sunday. This morning we're going to walk through the Gospel of John chapter 20. So if you've got your Bibles, I invite you to open to John chapter 20. We're going to walk through this fairly briefly because it is the perfect passage for Resurrection Sunday. As John the disciple, John the apostle, John the revelator, wants to make sure we understand the full scope and impact of the truth that he's alive. So, John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, it's why we as a church for the last two millennia have gathered on a Sunday as a proclamation, as a demonstration, as a declaration of the fact that he's alive. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark feel it feel it sense the heavy thick darkness that still covers jesus is buried on friday before sunset he has to have been buried before sunset and then the hours have gone by it's six hours in the tomb it's 12 hours in the tomb it's 24 hours in the tomb it's 36 hours in the tomb now we're into the 40 hours of the tomb and Mary goes to the tomb while it's still dark. Why does she go in the dark? I don't know. We know that it is forbidden under the laws of Shabbat on Saturday. You cannot visit a tomb or a grave on Sabbath. And so she's forbidden from going. My sense is that she goes as absolutely early as she's able. As soon as the light begins to flicker, she's already on her way. It's not that Mary Magdalene was afraid. Please understand. 
(laughs) This is a woman who had been indwelled by seven unclean spirits, we are told. Possessed by seven demons. Oh, she knew the evil of this world and what it could produce. And Jesus had freed her. He had released her from that bondage. This woman loved him. She was devoted to him. And the first opportunity she gets, she heads to the tomb. We'll find out in verse 2 that she's not alone. There were actually other women with her. But she goes to the tomb. The last thing she's expecting is what she encounters. She assumes he's still there. These women doing their best culturally to sort of beat back the corruption of a dead body would come with spices to anoint it further to try to leave some modicum of decency and that's why they have come. She saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb and it was dark and it was night and it grew darker. Things just got worse. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, at the request of the Jewish leaders, has put a seal across the stone that was rolled in front of the tomb with his insignia. If you break the seal and move the stone, you are guilty of penalty of death. And he even puts two soldiers there. I'm sure the angels who moved the stone were very, very frightened by that threat as they went, ha, ha, click. But the stone has been rolled away and Mary gets there. All she anticipates, all she assumes is the worst. That she saw her Savior, her Lord, her teacher, her master, shamed, naked, beaten, spat upon, mocked, hanged on a cross and dead. And now it's gotten worse. Now she assumes that someone has come and taken him away. That they have further desecrated his body, perhaps even going so far as to dismember it as a signal and a warning by the authorities to discourage anyone else from following in his footsteps. It's just gotten worse. It's just gotten darker. So, verse 2, she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. We'll find out that other disciple is John himself. It's interesting to note, John and the other disciple are also not at the tomb. This is not their expectation. Mary does not expect Jesus to be alive. John and Peter do not expect Jesus to be alive. Why does John make a big deal about telling us this? Because John wants us to understand that this was not the disciples' story. This was not their creativity. This was not their invention. They didn't make this stuff up. They didn't just go, you know what I think we'll do is come up with a story. They didn't expect this at all. It was a complete and total surprise to them. And they had walked with Jesus for three years. She went and told Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, John tells us about himself. You can always appreciate the fact that John writes this gospel and he always wants to remind his readership there was a disciple that Jesus really loved and then there was Peter. (laughs) Peter, you remember Captain America, awesome with the sword, whack, he misses. Peter who keeps saying dumb things and for 2,000 years as John and Peter play canasta up in heaven, I'm sure John's like, hey Peter, you remember that time you almost drowned? That was awesome. Peter's like, shut up. One who was loved, play, right? So she goes to Peter and John and she says, they, they have taken the Lord. They who? Just they, just, just the bad guys, evil, wickedness, the opponents of Christ. They, somebody, some bad people, they have come and they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we, so we know that Mary was not alone, we do not know 
where they have laid him. Things just got darker. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Now John's going to make sure that we understand something here. They were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. John wants us to make sure we understand that they're in a foot race here. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Who do you suppose is writing this? Now, church tradition tells us very strongly that Peter was a redhead. And I'm just going to say, we gingers are not built for distance. Okay? We're burst runners. We can get from here to the fridge and back and that's it. But you ask us to go a long ways. That's asking a lot. But John's young. He's lithe. He's nimble. He's quick. He gets there first. And for 2,000 years, John says, you know, the disciple that Jesus loved and who could outrun you, Pete. Okay, so thanks for that, John. And stooping to look. Now, John's going to give us in these first 10 verses his own personal testimony of conversion. This is his story of he himself transitioning, transforming from merely being a follower or a disciple into being a believer a convert. John's going to use three different words for the verb see. Okay? Three different words. He says, verse 5, and stooping to look. This is blepo in Greek. It's blepo. It just means to see, to acknowledge an image. You just see it with your eyes. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. But he did not go in. Now we know that John is known to the family of the high priest. He frequented the southern part of the country and followed John the Baptist in Judea. He was familiar with Second Temple Judaism. He knew the customs and the culture. And to go into a tomb would ceremonially defile you. In other words, John doesn't go in because he assumes there's a dead body in there. It is not his anticipation nor his expectation that Jesus is not in there. He stops, he stoops, he blepo. He he simply looks in. Then, here comes Simon Peter, huffing and puffing, regretting that last honey bun he wolfed down, and he finally gets to the tomb, and he doesn't even break stride. He charges right on in. This is wonderful symmetry, and I do appreciate the authorship of John who was very careful to tell us that in the courts of the high priest, John went in bravely, but that Peter cowed back. And he denied Christ once, twice, thrice. And his eyes met the Lord. And he went out and whipped, wept bitterly. But now, as he's heard that something else has happened to his Lord, this time Peter doesn't even slow down. John stops. He doesn't go in. But Peter charges all the way in. Some of you are like that. You got there late. But when you got there, you went straight to the back of the room. Then Simon Peter came in following him, and he went into the tomb, not caring about this ceremonial defilement whatsoever. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. This is an astonishing picture. The thought had been that grave robbers came and took him and defiled him or desecrated him or dismembered him. But grave robbers would not take the time to nicely, neatly unwrap it, having just clipped the cord of Pilate's seal. 
Grave robbers would not take off the clothing nicely, neatly, fold it up in the corner, you know, in a nice little hospital corner, tucking it in, no, and then take the head cloth, take it over to another side of the room, and fold it up nicely and neatly. Grave robbers don't do that. They just take the whole thing. And these garments are not torn and tattered as if somehow Jesus suddenly just went, Christ smash! No, that didn't happen. He didn't go all Hulk smash. It's as though someone passed through them, turned back, and took them, and arranged them nicely and neatly, and even the head napkin, and he folds it up and puts it separately. So that, Peter can see. Do you see? Do you see the grace in that? The one who had denied thrice is now invited in. See, the stone is rolled away. Not so that Jesus can get out, like, whew, I'm alive. Oh no, now what? No, 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 no. He's free. The stone is rolled away so that Peter, and by extension John, by extension us, can go in and see that he's alive. It's not what they expected. It's not what they anticipated. Not what they could even hope for. But it's true. All the so. He is alive. Verse 9. Sorry, verse 8. Then the other disciple, this is John, who reached the tomb first, also went in. So Peter, actually first John gets there. He blepo. He sees. And then Peter goes in and he sees. He theoro. He observes and analyzes. Now finally, verse 8, the third verb, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. He saw, he adon. He sees and recognizes and understands. Three different words. I observe the image, I analyze, and then I recognize and I understand. This is John's personal testimony. He went in and he saw and he believed. He understood that this Jesus was no longer dead he was alive. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. They still didn't get it. This was not their plan. This was not their invention. Verse 10, then the disciples, what do you do when you see the risen Lord Jesus? You go home because they didn't know what else to do. They're like, I didn't see that coming. I didn't expect that at all. We didn't make this stuff up. He's alive. Well, what do we do now? And so they went back to their homes. By the way, they're Galileans. They don't have homes in Jerusalem, so they go back to the homes in which they're staying, but they don't even live there. They're so befuddled, they're so confused, they just leave. They don't know what else to do. And now the lens focuses down even more, and we're going to narrow the emphasis down to one witness. Back to Mary, verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Now this is a little bit tragic to me because we're told by John that John sees, recognizes, understands John Adon, and he believes. He gets it. Jesus is alive. He walks out of the tomb. There's Mary weeping, sobbing, and John goes, hmm. <laughs> Who does that? Apparently, John is so befuddled, so stunned and dazed and amazed himself that he doesn't even explain it to her. He just goes back home. He's like, I, I, don't, I don't know what to say. And so there's poor Mary Magdalene, left again at the tomb, weeping. Listen to how John describes her experience. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. 
How could this have gone so terribly wrong? This one who had saved her, who had taught her, who had loved her, this one who had released her from the bondage of seven unclean spirits, this one who had made her laugh, who had made her cry, who had given her life and nobility and dignity, this Mary had used all of her personal finances to fund his personal ministry. By the way, the church has had to apologize to her posthumously, wrongly in the Middle Ages accused her of being a prostitute. She was not. Nowhere is that found in Scripture. She had a heck of a bad time with seven unclean spirits, make no mistake, but nowhere in Scripture does it say that she was a prostitute. Whatever resources she had, Luke 8 tells us, she financed the ministry of Jesus. And now this wickedness has taken him. It looks as though he's lost. It's all gone wrong. And she weeps profoundly. The cry of the hopeless. She wept. She stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw. Mary Magdalene is treated to an experience that neither Peter nor John enjoy. They don't get to see this. They don't get to experience this. But Mary looks in and she sees uniquely two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Now, John is not just using words to describe the setting here. John always has a theological thrust. There is always a theological theme to what John is writing. When John tells us that there are two angels dressed in white at the head and the foot of where Jesus had lain, he's telling us something. He assumes that we know our Old Testament. All throughout the Old Testament, we are told about the sacrificial system from Leviticus. In Exodus, Moses is told to make an Ark of the Covenant, and the lid of that Ark is called the Mercy Seat. That Mercy Seat is where the blood of the sacrifice is sprinkled so that atonement can be made, so that God's wrath will be propitiated, that is, satisfied. John wants us to understand that we walk in, there's the Mercy Seat. The Mercy Seat on the Ark of the Covenant is covered by two angels, one on this end, one on this end. We walk into the empty tomb and what do we see? Two angels where the shed blood of Jesus spilled out. John wants us to know that the shed blood of Jesus is now again pulsing through his veins because he is alive. He has done it. No longer must innocent animals die for the sin of guilty humans year after year after year. Now, one innocent human who is also God has died for all. It is finished. God's wrath is propitiated. The atonement has been made. And Mary Magdalene is the first person to see that it is finished. This is John's theological theme. Not only that, but the Old Testament will say over and over again, by two or more witnesses is a thing confirmed. Mary's all alone. Not only that, she's a woman. I didn't make this up. It's not my idea. But in antiquity, a woman's testimony was not even permissible in a court of law because, you know, she's a woman. But Jesus appears to her first. She is the first one to see the theological thrust of the completed mercy seat of sacrifice. They said to her, the angels, woman, why are you weeping? They don't understand. In light of what they know that Christ has done, they don't understand why she's so despondent. They know something. 
she said to them, they, who's they? Just they, the bad, the evil, the wicked, the, the opponents, the, the, the evildoers, they have taken away my Lord. I don't know what you think about when you think about Mary, but I'm all in on this lady because she was all in on Jesus, even post-death. Listen to what she says. I don't know where he is. They have taken away my Lord. I don't know where they have laid him. I don't know where he is, but I want him. I want to know what has happened to him. Having said this, she turned. Now, John doesn't give us their expressions. I would give all of my resources, everything I have and own, if I could have seen the looks on these two angels' faces as she's looking at them and they're watching as he approaches her from behind. What must they have seen? What must their faces have done as they see him approaching her from behind? Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. He's now somehow different. He was alive. He died. He was buried. He was glorified and he rose again. And there was breath in his lungs. He was alive. She didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, ooh, that seems kind of callous, aloof, a little ambivalent. Oh no, there's a theological thrust here too. Jesus says to her, woman, why? Because John wants us to understand that this is the last Adam. In the Garden of Eden, in Genesis, Adam calls Eve woman. It's not because he can't remember her name. There's only one other. He calls her woman. Why? Because she has come from him. Because she is a part of him. And he gets to name her in the creation. Woman. John wants us to understand. This is the very first of the new family. The new remade, recreation woman. This woman who was indwelled by seven demons. She's the first little sister of Jesus. She is remade and her soul quakes because she is the flicker of a redemptive re-creation. He calls her woman. Oh, he's not being aloof. It's a re-creation that is occurring and she still doesn't fully get it. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Listen to her response. And he says, whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. <laughs> she didn't know how correct she actually was. Adam was supposed to have been the gardener in the Garden of Eden, but he failed. This is the capital G gardener who will ultimately identify the entire cosmos. But she doesn't understand that yet. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you had carried him, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. Listen to this Mary, and I will take him away. I don't care where he is, I don't care what you've done with him. Just tell me where he is. I'll go get him. She hasn't thought this through. She doesn't care. Can you imagine Mary Magdalene, maybe weighing 110 pounds soaking wet, dragging this 48-hour corpse? To wherever, she doesn't know, but just, just get me to Jesus. <laughs> Jesus said to her, Mary. That slays me. He just calls her by name. See, that, my friends, is belief. That's, that's getting it. That's when you finally realize and believe and trust 
that he actually knows your name, that he cares for you, that he wants to know you, that he wants to have you, that he wants to save you by name, not your group, not your community, not your nation, not your tribe, not your clan, you, that he knows your name and he moves his life toward you. Why? Because you're so awesome. No, because he is. Because he simply chooses to love you. He calls her by name Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni. Why does John tell us that she speaks Aramaic? They all spoke Aramaic. Because John wants us to know precisely what happens so that we will know the enormity of what this means. She turns around. She understands that it's him and she says, Rabboni. And John translates for us, which means teacher. Why does John translate? Because John wants us to understand the enormity of what has just occurred. John assumes and hopes that we, his readers, will be very familiar with Isaiah chapter 30. In Isaiah chapter 30, some seven centuries before the first coming of Christ, Isaiah prophesies of the weeping and the sorry estate of Israel, that they will moan, they will be sorrowful. But in Isaiah chapter 30, Verses 19 to 21, listen to what Isaiah prophesies. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. And she was weeping. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, oh, she was sorrowful, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher and your ears shall hear a word behind you, saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right, or when you turn to the left. (laughs) What was prophesied some 700 years prior is utterly and ultimately fulfilled in the person of Mary Magdalene. This is that, John is telling us. What Isaiah looked forward to occurred in this garden with Mary Magdalene. She saw Her teacher, Israel's teacher, was here, and he was alive. Now, what would you have done? I confess, I would have snotted myself silly and lunged for his feet. And I'm encouraged because apparently that's exactly what Mary does. She just dives for his feet. to the Father. It's about to be even bigger and even better than my bodily presence, Mary. It's about to be a new thing. And Mary, Mary, you, a woman, formerly indwelled by seven unclean spirits, Mary, you, you get to be the first one to proclaim it. It's you. I don't know your background. I don't know the junk in your history, but here's what I can tell you. You're probably not as jacked up and damaged as having seven demons. There is no extent beyond which the grace of God can and will go. Do you see the ennobling, the dignifying of this woman as Jesus says, no, 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 no. Hear now my voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Listen what Jesus tells her to go and do. But go instead to my brother's. Jesus has never called the disciples his brothers. He's called them his friends, his disciples, his his learners. But now he calls them his brothers. A new thing is beginning. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father 
and your Father. He's never said this to them before. My God, my Father, my God, my Father. Now, you are my brothers. He is your Father. Why? Because in John chapter 14, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. It is prepared. I am that place. It's me, a person, and now I am your brother. He is your Father. He has begun a new thing. Two days ago on Good Friday, we talked about the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, the third of which is, Woman, behold your son. He, son, she is your mother. Is he just saying, be nice to your mommies? No. He's telling us that in his death, he is instituting, implementing a whole new community, a family where spirit-indwelled believers have a bond that transcends physiological, biological family. My brothers, your God, your Father. Go and tell them, I'm going and I am ascending. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Oh no, 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 not, not his body, not his corpse. I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. In other words, Mary went back and said, he's alive, y'all. He's alive. Now then, verse 19, that same evening, it's still dark for the disciples. Do you see what John's doing? Scene change. It's still Sunday, but now it's nighttime. This is the paragraph that is quintessentially written for my seventh grade brain. It's a high comedy. It's hysterical to me because I never fully matured beyond the seventh grade. You know this. Follow along. You'll understand. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, it's Sunday evening, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews they expected a lot of things to happen. It wasn't that Jesus was alive. They expected that they were about to get rounded up themselves. And so they're hiding in the dark behind locked doors. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you! <laughs> That's awesome! I mean, come on! You don't think Jesus goes, Oh, this is so good. The door's locked. I'll just pass on through. What's up, guys? Peace be with you! Shalom! And they puckered. You know they did. You know they just lost it right there. Like, whoa, we didn't see that. I'm so going to do that to y'all one day. Like, I don't know when it's going to happen. I'm going to, and then I'm going to come back and be like, hey, shalom. It's all right. He surprises them. But not only does he give them the customary greeting of peace be with you, but it's also a proclamation of what he's accomplished. No, really, peace be with you. I have prepared the place. You now are going to be in me. You have peace with God. And after they stopped shaking, he said, come and look. He showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad. Terrible translation, glad. They're euphoric. They're overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Even post-resurrection, the scars of his crucifixion and what he accomplished are glorified. And it will be. For all eternity, we will sing the praises of what he has done. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. What did God the Father do? He sent his son into hostile territory. He sent his son to people who didn't want to hear him. He sent his son to people who were undeserving. He sent his son to the people who were guilty. He sent his son to the people who would reject him. And Jesus says, congratulations, boys. I now send you to those same ones because I love them and I love you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them 
A lot has been written about this. Is this a little mini Pentecost? No. It's a precursor, a foreshadowing of what's going to happen at the day of Pentecost in 50 days. It is intended to remind us of Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when God breathes into Adam and gives him new life. Jesus here breathes on these disciples and gives them new life. They are a new creation. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. No, Jesus is not implementing hierarchical clergy. He's simply saying, this is what the gospel is. You proclaim forgiveness. If they receive and believe, they are forgiven. If they reject, they are not forgiven. Go get them, boys. Now then, finally, verse 24. I will tell you, I have been looking forward to John chapter 20, verse 24, since September of 2018. Because this is the culmination, this is the climax of the entire gospel. Here's the payoff for the entire narrative that John gives us. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin. More than likely, he is Matthew's twin. We don't know that for certain, but most probably, he is Matthew's twin. He was not with them when Jesus came. Where's Thomas? We don't know. He's out. He's given up. It is still dark. It is still night in the soul of Thomas. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. He's alive, Tommy. He's alive. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Listen to the finality. Listen to the dare. And maybe some of you are there today. You're saying, Unless I experience it sensorily, unless I have absolute mathematical proof, I will never believe. Unless I see the clip on YouTube, I will never believe. Because no one ever alters YouTube videos or wiki pages, and your five senses could never be tricked, could they? You ever had an Altoid? Do you think it really makes your mouth colder? Do you really? It's just powder, y'all. It doesn't make your mouth colder. But it sure seems chilly in there, don't it? Oh, your senses can be fooled. So if you're still looking for empirical mathematical proof, I give you Thomas. Eight days later, he has to wait more than a week. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, I'm still not so sure about this deal. I don't know how this is going to go. Let's lock the doors again. Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you. <laughs> he loves that trick. That's so good. I love that about Jesus. Shalom. They puckered up again. Then he said to Thomas, how dare you disbelieve, you doubting doofus. No, that's a bad translation. That's not in the text. In an astonishing display of grace, Jesus appears again. And he goes directly to Thomas, knowing what Thomas had said earlier. Here, put your finger here. Put your hands here. Jesus came and stood them and said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. It is redundant and gloriously so. And when the master summons you to believe, you, you just believe. You don't maybe have all the knowledge to explain every little bitty aspect of everything in Scripture. But for some reason you think, you know what, I think he's alive. I don't understand how that's possible, but I believe that he's alive. 
My prayer this whole week in preparation for this morning is that some of you would just believe that he's alive. I don't know. Any other Bible verses? You don't have to explain the Trinity? You don't have to tell me how Jesus healed people with mud? Just gotta know that he's alive. That you would just believe that. That he's alive. Thomas answered him, what is the intended answer of every reader of this gospel? What is the intended answer of every reader of the Bible? Listen to what he says. My Lord and my God. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is divine. That's the payoff. I don't know how it's possible, but he's alive. And if he's alive, he must be God. If he's God, he must be sovereign. I believe it. I don't understand all of it. I might not even like all of it because I secretly still kind of want to be God. But I think he's alive. I really do. And if so, then all of this other stuff must be true. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. You see, Jesus, and by extension John, wants us to believe that he's alive. Well, finally, the purpose. We've been referring to this verse all series long since September. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. Assembling all four gospel accounts together, Jesus does 35 separate signs, miracles, and wonders. 35. John only records seven. So that, as they are arranged, you and I will see and we will believe. Just like John did. Just like Thomas did. They're not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John chapter 20. He's alive. So on this Easter morning, what are we to do with this narrative? How can we apply this to our lives? Let me just give you three very quick implications of what it means and how we are to now go out and be different. Since he's alive, y'all, Here's the now what. Number one goes like this. Look like he's alive. I don't mean that the way my naval dad used to say it. Look alive, Barton. Not not look alive. I mean, look. That's the theme over and over through John chapter 20, that you would look. And now having looked and seen and believed, see the world through different lenses. Look at the world as if he's alive. Look at the world as if he's alive. The fact that there is one who is alive and who will never die again and who cannot possibly die again and is coming again changes the way we see the world all around us. What we see and what we perceive is not all that there is. There is so much more. And there are worse things than death. There are better things than human flourishing. And when we recognize that he's alive, we begin to see our world through his eyes. That's wisdom. Our wants and our desires grow increasingly like his and we increase in sensitivity to the things that he cares about. How he chooses to see us, that God chooses to see us in Christ, actually changes how we see the world around us. I hope I wreck you and ruin you. That from now on, when you walk out, you can't help but see the world you live in through the eyes and the lens of the fact that he's alive, y'all. He's alive. Number two, if we look like he's alive, we are also to live like he's alive. It changes our attitude and our behavior. We live like he's alive. There's a great old song. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. I don't fear the ringing of the telephone. Because he lives, 
I live differently. And not just scraping by, not just making it through somehow, but we are to live the indestructible life now. Every event we encounter is intended to be experienced in proper perspective, no matter what we occur, what occurs. Should the doctor call? Should uh, the relationship crumble? Should the finances fail? Whatever. We know how this story goes, and we know the one that wrote the story, and we trust that he knows our names, and he never forgets a name, and he loves us, and he wants better for us even than we want ourselves. See, joy is the result of fulfillment, and we are to be filled to the brim Jesus told us in chapter 15 that he wants us to enjoy our lives with his joy. What the world needs is billions of people actively abiding in Christ. So look at the world as if he's alive. Live in the world like he's alive. Number three, love like he's alive. Love like he's alive. Just as Jesus was sent by the Father to a people in need of redemption, a people who didn't deserve it, a people who are not willing to receive it very often, we have been dignified by being dispatched to declare the glories of the gospel to the people God has placed around us. We are to give the gospel, the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. We are not called to give our opinions on politics or the economy. I looked it up this week. Never in human history has a single human soul been saved by political argument. Never! And yet, so often, that is how the world outside assumes and perceives Christians that all they want to do is complain about politics and government. No, no, no. We just give the gospel. Those we encounter who are not of the faith are not to be viewed as irritants or enemies because Jesus didn't view us that way, but as those for whom God may do what he has done for us. I wonder, when was the last time, if ever, The people who irritate you most in your life, you looked at them and in your heart you said, my God, my God, why have you not forsaken me? And would you do for them what you have done for me? It will break you. It'll break you. The people of whom you are indifferent, who are insignificant and inconsequential to you, would you look at them and say, my God, my God, would you do for her what you have done for me? It will stun you as God does work in and through you and you begin to see their lives change. Love like he's alive. You see, what Jesus accomplished was so marvelous. This is why Paul will develop this much further in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. He will say, those whom he calls, he predestines. Those whom he predestines, he justifies. All these, so that, in order that, he might be the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. There's a new family, y'all, because he's alive. And we have the distinguishing nobility to invite others into the fold, into the family. See, he's alive. Throughout the entirety of his passion and his suffering, the Lord Jesus was perfectly in control of the situation so that his sheep could have life abundantly. He experienced shame and suffering and death so that we never would. And now he's alive so that we too will enjoy and experience eternality now. See, he's our big brother. God is now our father. The book of Hebrews says that this Jesus, our big brother, even as we 
sit here in this room this morning, Jesus, our big brother, the ultimate defender of the family, sings songs over us right now. Shh. I can't wait to hear those songs. But I will, because he's alive. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer and somehow you found your way into this church on Easter Sunday morning, I would be remiss if I did not invite you to believe it. The Bible tells us that Jesus was seen by over 500 eyewitnesses who gave account after the resurrection. 500. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus is historical fact. I can provide no greater proof than that. 500 plus eyewitness accounts. He is alive. And if he's alive, then by definition, by definition, he must be God. If he is God, he must be sovereign. And by definition, all of the other stuff must simply fall away. I know you have a whole lot of yabbits. That's okay. So did Thomas. I invite you to stand with your entire being on the truth that he's alive. And he who begins a good work in you will carry it to completion. He will. And for the rest of you who are believers, would you be encouraged all over again? Would you look like he's alive? Would you live like he's alive? Would you love like he's alive? Look around. The people in this room are not in your way. There will never come a time in all of eternity when you will not know them. Forever. So we might as well love each other now. And so as the church has said for millennia, it is tradition. I say he is risen. You respond with he is risen indeed. He is risen let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. We thank you that it is finished. There's nothing else we have to add, nothing else we have to try and do. You have done it. You've accomplished redemption. The wrath of God is satisfied. The place has been prepared in the person of Christ. And so I do pray, Father, if there's some in this room that do not know you, that you will move irresistibly by your spirit, not because of the words that I have spoken, not because of any other reason, but that you would move, that you would summons them to not disbelieve, but believe. May salvation come to this house. And Father, would they have boldness and courage and confidence to speak to someone they know and love and trust about that. And for the rest of us, Father, would you by your spirit, among your people, through your word, energize us to look and live and love like your son Jesus is alive. May it be exactly as I have prayed or even better. We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. And everybody agreed and they said, amen. Happy Easter. Let me ask you to stand for a word of benediction and we'll be dismissed. I want to remind you. As every service, we have someone here at the front that would love to pray with you about what you've just heard. If you would like to make a confession of belief, anything else that's going on, Colleen is here, Nathan is here. They would love to pray with you. Here's our benediction. It's short and it goes like this. He's alive, y'all. God bless. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.